This is KCLR's Bottom Line with John Purcell. Brought to you with thanks to O'Neill Foley Accountants, the Southeast's largest independent accountancy practice. www.ons.ie Hello, good morning and welcome to the Bottom Line, the programme for and about business on KCLR. I'm John Purcell with you until 10 o'clock and as we march into spring on KCLR, urging you to stay tuned for the next hour and indeed to KCLR throughout the day. We've got lots in store. This morning on the Bottom Line, as we approach the first anniversary of a year radically changed, which has seen working environments transformed by the COVID pandemic, we discuss the pros and cons of remote working and hear tips for doing it better from Claire McInerney Brown. We'll discuss conserving water in business, contributing to sustainability and saving money with Christine Crawford from Irish Water and Dara Doyle, Bureau Chief for Bloomberg in Ireland, will join us to discuss the week in business, how the Irish economy is bearing up under the stresses and strains of COVID and he'll be telling us about what went on at stockbroking firm Davy, which led the central bank to levy a massive 4.1 million euro fine. But first, two weeks ago on the programme, we discussed the decision by NatWest Bank to close Ulster Bank in Ireland uh, with Jim Power. Jim called it the beginning of a new banking crisis, uh, which we'll see. The bank, established over 160 years ago, closed its branches in Ireland, including in Carlow Town and Kilkenny City and that was even before last week on this programme, before the news was officially announced by Bank of Ireland on Monday Eamon Quinn of the Irish Examiner told us how the bank was planning to close 88 branches in this area. This will see the closure of Bank of Ireland branches in Boris, Callan, Gregnamana, Thomastown, Tullow and Erlingford. So altogether between Ulster Bank and Bank of Ireland, 8 branches Bank branches are set to close in this area in the coming months. Uh, The picture on banking has huge implications for business. Uh, The prospect of just two big banks is bad news for competition. And the closure of long-established branches will leave big gaps in hard-pressed towns, the length and breadth of Carlow. Kilkenny. With me to discuss these issues is Minister Malcolm Noonan, who is, of course, TD for Carlow. Kilkenny, but he's a Minister of State for Heritage and Electoral Reform. Good morning, Malcolm. Good morning, John. And thanks for joining us this morning on the programme. You heard uh, my introduction there. Jim Power is describing it as a banking crisis, but there are also um, implications for towns. Let's discuss the kind of banking aspect of it first. Um, You know, uh, less competition, and we know what that means. Uh, What do you think the government is going to do about this, or should the government do anything? Is it just the market taking its course? What's your view? Uh, well, my own view, and I think so, the view within government, is that the government really does have to intervene in some way in this regard. I mean, it is, as Jim has said, it's a, it's a, a seismic shift in banking and moving away from um, the traditional high street retail banking uh, to online. There's also, I mean, it's, there's also other challenges created by COVID where there's a huge volume of savings and not much borrowing going on, which is cre- that's creating its own challenge as well. Um, and I, I suppose in the, just in the last week, um, we would have put together a paper within the Green Party to submit to, to our own government colleagues around public banking and looking at the models like such as Sparkasse in Germany, where there is a, 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 a another banking sector which is very much led through credit unions and um, local authorities. And what changes and, and would have to take place to make that a reality, Malcolm? Well, there would there would have to be significant changes. I'd imagine it would have to be legislated for, and but it, it would give 
additional powers to, to post offices, credit unions, perhaps even lo- in Germany, local government has a central role in public banking and they obviously do their lending like a normal commercial bank, but the, the revenue and the income goes back into public projects. So it, it, do, it does, it's another option and another uh, way of trying to, to address the crisis, but um, certainly uh, I think government is taking um, uh, you know, a very close look at it. I think the Minister for Finance has spoken of the need to, to, to look at uh, competition within the market in Ireland, uh, given the, the situation we're in. And um, I, I think from, from that side, from the, the financial side of it, I think that's important. There's also obviously the retail, which is uh, going to have a devastating impact on our towns. Yeah. Um, would you be confident, Malcolm, that something as radical as what you're suggesting will receive a hearing from your uh, partners in the coalition, Fianna Fáil and, and Fianna Gael? And is it possible to push something through in the next two or three years that will make a difference? Or is this just a pipe dream down the road? No, we, we think it is. I mean, we actually came close with this uh, with previous, uh, indeed with Pascal Donoghue in, in, in the 32nd all, and um, previously with Michael Noonan. Um, so we actually think there is an opportunity that public banking could be brought onto the table. The, uh, our finance bo- spokesperson, NASA Harrigan, has worked uh, with um, Mark Deary, who worked uh, in our team on it over the last number of months and trying to bring it back together because we were aware of this crisis looming. And uh, we actually think that there is an opportunity to have it discussed again to see where it could move forward and it would give uh, a whole new role to our credit unions, to our post offices and indeed to, to local government. Do you think the government, uh, you know, uh, with so many crises going on, we have a crisis in, uh, you know, the COVID crisis, is there the bandwidth in government, is there the space, the, the, the mind space to take on a big issue like this? I, I think there is. I think, you know, we've, we've certainly proven in a very short period of time that we have have had to respond to not just the the COVID crisis, but the but what the COVID crisis is is laying before us in other sectors, in health, in education, and in in um, in housing and finance. And uh, the the reality is, we have to look at a whole new way of doing things as we emerge from this. Um, certainly, you know, the vaccines are giving us some hope. Uh, the, the the numbers are moving in the right direction. But if we look at a post COVID world, it has to be a very different one than the, the one we headed into. So mm-hmm. I think that, that gives us an opportunity to perhaps have the, that radical rethink and, and start thinking differently on, on what the world might look like after after the, this, this particular crisis. Yeah, I was talking just to a business owner yesterday, Malcolm, who was talking about the way the, the government moved very quickly um, and brought in, you know, life-saving uh, supports for many businesses uh, and he was commending the government for that but he was greatly sceptical that um, such speed of movement uh, can be repeated uh, because, you know, the crisis isn't, uh, you know, acute enough. Can you reassure that person who is quite sceptical? I can. Um, you know, I've again, over the last number of weeks in particular, I would have met with different sectors, hotel sector here in Kilkenny in particular, because uh, Kilkenny will be quite uh, heavily dependent on, on, on uh, tourism and, and services. And and certainly, you know, there there is a big ask of that response. I, I do think that there is a collective ambition and will in government, particularly as we're looking towards that, that bigger overarching targets of rapid decarbonisation and the, the, the high ambition around energy, uh, I think that Ireland could position itself very, very well 
um, in the whole Green New Deal and through the Resilience and Recovery Fund to use that wisely mm. and moving towards a, a very different shaping of, of, of our future. And the banking system, well, we, we shall see. But Ma- Malcolm, you're, you're passionate about town centres and, and there's extensive stuff on your website. Um, town centres in Kilkenny, Carlow, Boris, Callan, Gregnamana, Thomastown, Tur- Tullow and Orlingford, very bad news because more than just the closure of banks, but people come into towns to visit banks, or, or they did before COVID. <laughs> anyway, um, you know, it is a bit of a blow. Uh, how are you feeling about the, your mission to revitalise town centres now? I think it, it, there's a significant challenge there. I think we're, we're doing uh, quite an amount of work in our own department. Minister Burke is leading on the, uh, in, in my department, is leading on the town centres first. And uh, our element of it is the heritage of that part of it, which is not insignificant because most of our towns are primarily 18th, 19th century building stock. Um, I'm also having uh, you know meetings with Chambers Ireland, RG Data, uh, and others around the retail uh, side of it. And we think there's a huge opportunity. I, I attended a, a, an online conference with the Scotland Town Centres Partnership a number of weeks ago, and they're, they've been slightly ahead of us, and they've been doing quite a bit of work for pre-COVID for quite a number of years on the future of their towns, and have put in place a suite of measures, both at uh, central government policy level, right down to local government level, to variable rates, lots of different opportunities, as well as the, the built heritage regeneration, getting families back living in town centres. And I think there's a lot Obviously, we can't replicate that uh, as is, but we can certainly learn a lot from what has gone on in Scotland. And uh, But I think here the challenge is a myriad of challenges that have been building up uh, for quite some time. The, the whole movement of retail, particularly the, the UK high street retail, multiple brands, the fashion brands uh, moving away. It, it, I see that as, as an opportunity, and um, particularly for local businesses. We have a lot of innovators in Carlon Kilkenny that um, in retail and particularly in fashion and in the high end of uh, of the retail side of things yeah. that could see this space and, and, and look at the opportunities that are there. We've about a minute left, Malcolm. Can you give us a couple of practical things that you think the government could do to, to do that? Like, what, what does all this mean? It, people just hear a lot of policy stuff, but what does that practically mean to help town centres get going again? Yeah, so the, the the large policy document will be coming out in a few weeks. The, the, the one thing we want to be sure of is that the local government, that local government is, is has within it the skills to to reconfigure our urban centres. That's having town architects, uh, conservation repurposing officers, uh, to look at the, at unlocking the potential in the buildings and town centres. How can you make it attractive for business, though, Malcolm? Because that's the the business. Well, kind we of think that that in itself that's a, that's a starting point. The, you know, there's a the, the regeneration in the urban centre has proven economically. Uh, there's a lot of international studies that that uh, getting families back living in urban centres addressing the issues of mobility, cycling, walking in our town centres, just the public realm, having good quality public realm, that quality of life aspect that you won't get in, say, on the periphery of towns, on the edge of towns. And it's that incentivisation and uh, we think is a vital part of it. So it's a a combination of that and then local authorities looking at at the opportunities to to vary rates and putting in um, incubator units for new start-ups, uh, we're, I know you're going to be discussing the movement towards um, towards remote working, mm. but we still think there's opportunity. Primarily, um, I would see the opportunity in in urban, good quality urban living, uh, and moving our retail 
because it is going to shift and it is shifting towards online. So uh, a lot of our innovators in our town centres are having a good online presence as well as an on-street presence. Okay, Malcolm. Well, look, thank you very much for taking the time to join us uh, this morning. I do appreciate it. That's Minister for State uh, at the Department of Heritage and Electoral Reform, Malcolm Noonan. Thanks, Malcolm. Thanks, John. The Bottom Line on KCLR with John Purcell. Brought to you in association with O'Neill Foley Accountants. Our website, onf.ie, shows the full range of services we provide to businesses large and small. You're listening to The Bottom Line, the programme for and about business. John Purcell, it's 22 and a half minutes after nine o'clock. With you until 10 when Edward Hayden uh, takes the hot seat. Um, Now joining me on the line is Dara Doyle, who's Bureau Chief for Bloomberg Ireland to look back over some of the big business stories that were hitting the headlines during the week. Good morning, Dara. Hey, how you doing, John? Have Good, well? thanks. Yeah, um, Davy took a bit of a hit, 4.1 million uh, fine, and I was amazed to see that the central bank was actually going to fine it 5.9 million first, but they got a discount. Yeah, often that will happen in, in these kind of uh, uh, central bank uh, settlements. And we've seen kind of a raft of them over the last kind of year. This would probably be the most pri- high profile because Davy is obviously a big name in Dublin circles. Um, but often you'd see that, you know, uh, there would be a sort of a headline fine that would be reduced if, you know, the, the, the offending party was seen to have kind of cooperated, you know, reasonably early in the process. Uh, I guess on the grounds that it's a bit of cooperation that reduces the cost that the central bank has to put in place you know, when it's doing these investigations. So kind of the, the, there's a bit of an incentive there for people to cooperate with various inquiries. So it's something that you'd see fairly routinely. Now, to be honest, with somebody like, well, with a firm like Davy, you know, I know it sounds like a lot of money, you know, $4 million, uh, and it is a lot of money, but, you know, it's a fairly kind of wealthy firm with probably large cash reserves. The hit, to be totally honest, is probably bigger on a reputational front. Mm. Um I'm not sure how much you know about Davey, much you want me to say about Well, Davey, talk, talk us through it. I, I know that they have 48,000 active clients and they're managing about 8.5 billion, um, but it was basically conflicts of interest. And from my understanding of it, it, it was pretty egregious uh, conflicts of interest. But explain it for our listeners. Yeah, I mean, like, a bit of context. I mean, Davey would probably be the most influential uh, stockbroker in the Irish market. Um, so how does that manifest itself? Well, for, for example, when Ireland is issuing bonds, i.e. it's you know, getting all the cash in to pay for, you know, everything that we've had over the last couple of years, or a lot of what we've had in the last couple of years, and um, Davey goes out and it helps Ireland raise cash uh, from international investors. It also would be advising the government on issues like when it's selling a stake in AIB, Davey would be out there kind of uh, international roadshows and selling the Irish story. So, you know, it's just a pretty powerful player. So what, what appears to have happened, and we still don't have all the details, but what appears to have happened is that Davey was hired or, or he was hired essentially to sell a bond on behalf of, of somebody else. Uh, and that was fine, but what it seems to the company who's done it, 16 individuals within the company seem to have bought that bond um, for themselves and then sold it on later on. And uh, crucially, they didn't tell uh, the client that they were um, uh, that they were that they were the, the buyers. So I'm trying to think about it this morning. Is as if you hired a. Uh, a real estate agent to sell your house for you and actually the real estate agent bought the house himself and not only did he buy the house himself he didn't tell you that he was the buyer of the of the of the house I know um, and uh, yeah, exactly. And then also what appears to have been the case, and we've seen some reports, is that um, it turns out that the, pr- 
price that they paid for those bonds, or if you think of the real estate, it wasn't actually the highest price that maybe could have been achieved. Uh, it seems that the that, 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 that they client could have achieved a higher price uh, if somebody else had bought the bonds and were other winning buyers. So it seems that maybe he didn't actually get the highest price. So again, going back to that example of the house, it looks like that there might have been, you know, a, a more winning buyer out there would have paid you more for your house if you had known about it. Um, so yeah, that's that. That was again. Now, just to be clear, it was sixteen. It wasn't the. It wasn't the, <laughs> the firm, firm. I, 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 as an entity. As Meghan Markle would say. The firm. It was. A, I don't want to be spitting hair, but it was sixty. It's something. Something. The science things we do. It was sixty individuals within the firm, um, and most damagingly, it seems that some of these were uh, some of the most senior executives at the time. And um, the central bank hasn't produced a list of sixty individuals. Some of them have been named in Irish media. I'm not going to go into that. I'm not going to go there. But some of them have been named um, locally. But it seems like it was some of the, the, the Davies' uh, top management at the time. Now some of them have appeared to. Have some that appear to be still being in place, um, but I don't think we've heard the last of this. Uh, no, pretty shoddy because, uh, as you said, 16 individuals uh, bought it, and I'm just reading from the central bank press release as, as we're talking, and it says mm. three weeks later the consortium sold a large tranche to a fund manager, and in the weeks prior to the sale, certain consortium members engaged with interested buyers to provide a Davy house view on the value of doing the bonds, and they didn't tell them that they were. Uh, not act, that they were they, they, it says they drew no distinction between whether they were acting in a professional capacity i.e. as the broker or a personal capacity as the seller big hit to their reputation yeah absolutely I mean one of the things I found most interesting was that the central bank accused uh, Davy of a lack of candour um, when they, you know, what seems to happen is the story seems to emerge through a court case that was then covered by the media Davy seems to have gone to the central bank at that point so ah. preempting it, but didn't but didn't provide all the details. Uh, the investigation unwound due to accusations of lack of candor, and some people seem to have sort of been placed closer to the transaction than they actually were in reality. Um, I don't know. So, yeah, uh, sorry. I to, you know, I hate, to, <laughs> I hate to use that phrase, but you know, sometimes it can be the um, like given the lack of candor. Maybe it's okay to say that, that not all. These, I don't. I don't know what to call it a cover up, but there seems to be not all the details were disclosed uh, quickly to the central bank. Um, and I think, that, I mean, that that is pretty damaging to, to, to somebody that you trust. Um, I mean, we know Davey's been running a, a heavy advertising, a advertising campaign in the national media for the last couple of years, you know, and it does seem to me to be a bit of a, a, bit of a blow yeah, to your reputation yeah. if you're accused of something like lack of candor, you know. And Look, I, I will say one thing that's interesting about Central Bank is they began, they've begun the last few years to employ much more direct language in these sort of settlements, you know. Yeah. They're trying to kind of get over to, to, to people that, like, the, you know, not hide in jargon, trying to say, look, these things are wrong. You, know, you, you, know, you shouldn't be doing these things. It's not just all counts in, in kind of jargon. But, you know, it, this was, I think, one of, I obviously see these, you see these settlements, I don't know, once a month or whatever, but I have to say the language in this one was some of the, the strongest that I've seen um, over the last kind of couple of years in the central bank. I mean, it, it really is a big hit to, to the daily reputation, I think. Yeah, now, um, interesting figures, moving on from that, interesting figures out during the, the week about the Irish economy, even the European economy and the good old Chinese economy uh, is up 6 percent but i was quite surprised with the irish numbers tell us about that yeah absolutely and again sort of grabbing international attention from what we can gather i think the irish economy is possibly one of the, the only european economy to have grown last year it grew by about uh 3.6 percent um 
But look, you know, we all live here. We know that, that, that last year was incredibly tough. And in fairness to Pascal Donahue and the government, they're not trying to kind of gild the lady. I mean, Pascal was out almost instantly with a, with, a, with a press statement after the GDP figures were released saying, look, you know, what we have here is a two-speed economy. On one hand, we've got the export sector, particularly like the likes of your sort of um, your technology sector and also your pharma sector that are doing really well and possibly doing even better because of the, the pandemic. But on the other hand, we've got uh, the domestic economy, which is you know struggling massively. Retailers taking a huge hit, personal spending down maybe nine, ten percent. Those kind of figures are much more in line with the European averages. So I don't think, in fairness to, to the past, who he's not trying to pretend that all is rosy, kind of in the garden, you know. Um, yeah, because huge parts of the economy are shuttered, like in this area, tourism, hospitality, the licensed business, and so on. Uh, you know, so it is real two-stroke uh, game of two halves. Yeah, I, I mean, absolutely, absolutely. But look, the one thing I will say, you know, it, you know, is this, is that, like, whatever about the real impact in the economy, the multinationals are big employers in Ireland. Like, I, I know, I think you have you have State Street, I think, down in, in yeah. Kenny, or did it at one point, I think you've got there's a lot of people employed there, right? Absolutely, um, yeah. And certainly, you know, close to where I am, we've got, you know, huge Google, Facebook, all these kind of people. So, I mean, there are, these are real jobs. They're not phantom jobs all the time. I mean, there's obviously issues about how much they actually produce and what goes through the Irish economic, you know, accounts. But there are real jobs. So I suppose the argument that, that, that there is is that they will be there in the, you know, as we go into the second half of the year. And what we'll be hoping, as you know, is the vaccines get rolled out, that the, the retailers can reopen, that the bars the tourism sector, that we can all come back to, you know, Kilkenny again um, and, you know, and, and see your lovely city again. Um, so what I'm trying to say is that basically the, 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 that will, that hopefully that second leg of the economy will come back in the second half of the year because we already know the multinationals are there and they're still strong and they're still big employers. So what we're hoping is that that will see true into the, into the, you know, second half of the year. You'll be second leg of the economy, and you know I could see a situation. I I don't want to be sort of Pollyanna about it and too optimistic, but I think we could have a really sort of strong growth story in in, in we'll say second half of the year, third quarter, you know, thirty fourth quarter next year or this year when the vaccines kind of get rolled out when the stores get open again. I mean, there's so much pent up at demand out there. I'm sure. Like, you know yourself, talking to your listeners, that people, like, haven't been able to, to, to go out and spend yeah. the way they could as sort of savings. Now, look, I'm not minimizing things, and a lot of people are on the PUP, you know, have, maybe haven't been able to save. But those of us who have been looking to get to keep our jobs, I mean, there's a lot of saving going on. I mean, I'm not sure if you've heard this, but I've heard anecdotally car dealers are still doing quite well or expecting a big surge in the second half of the year because people have been sort of saving chunks of money, you know. So yeah. it's quite possible we could see a very strong sort of third, fourth quarter of the year. And that's very problem. reassuring for people who are currently, you know, maybe uh, furloughed who are wondering what kind of economy they're coming back to because I've spoken to people who talk about that they're expecting kind of austerity and the same sort of environment that we had back in the dread days of the 2010s and 29s and all that sort of stuff but but um the figures are painting a more positive picture yeah i mean again we, we, it's too easy maybe to, to kind of be complacent about it but certainly i would su- suspect that there will be a massive kind of um uh, initial impact when when things begin to get better because you know people have been saving they'll be you know dying to go on weekend breaks to you know mm. to Kenny Carlo these kind of places you, you know be, the hotels I think it'll be sort of gangbusters for the six seven eight kind of months so I wouldn't expect there to be any kind of issues for, especially in the sort of second half of the year early part of next year now does that initial thing fade off and do we have to start paying for the kind of pandemic 
I mean, that would be a bit of a concern. Mm. But look, I mean, I think that we, my sense is that the lessons have been learned from the crisis of the financial crisis and the bailout 2010-13. I suspect there isn't this desire for massive austerity to kind of, to, 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 to kind of pay for the kind of pandemic. My, suspe- my suspicion is that we're going to, I mean, the reality is the only, there's only a couple of ways to pay for this. You know, it's uh, taxes are borrowing, and my, suspe- and my suspicion is that taxes are not going to rise incredibly fast, um, maybe a little, but not much. And I think we'll continue to see borrowing kind of going forward. And as long as the international lenders are happy to do that and continue to lend us the cash, then I suspect that that cushion will last well into 2022. Um, yeah. So an interesting week um, and uh, reasonably optimistic and, and reassuring uh, figures looking out so people shouldn't lose heart, even though they might be stuck at home and they may be on the pandemic unemployment uh, payment. Yes. Hopefully no, better no. days are ahead. But I will add that stockbroker, uh, you know, <laughs> line. If it, the, the, your values, the value of your investments can go down as well as up. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, hopefully we're not back here in a year's time. And there's no guarantees when it comes to this stuff. But I mean... Yeah, because we are dealing with the virus at the end of the day. Yeah, and you were asking me yesterday what, what are the big kind of risks. And I think the big risks are vaccine rollout is much slower than we, than we expect. Uh, or we've got new variants. That means that the vaccines don't work. But I mean, all the signs are the vaccines do cope with new variants. So... Like, fingers crossed, let's be kind of reasonably optimistic that it's going to be a slog. I think this first half of the year is going to be tough. Um, I don't know about you, I booked a week away in Mayo at the end of June. No, um, never go to Mayo. <laughs> well, you know, we won so many all irons off them. Um, <laughs> I feel I have to, have to give something back, you know. Absolutely. Uh, I jest, so Mayo listeners, I jest. Lovely county, and I have <laughs> been there. Dara, thanks talking to you. <laughs> Or thanks, good to talk to you. Take it easy. Take that's, care, John. Thanks. That's Dara Doyle, who's uh, head of Bloomberg uh, in Ireland, talking about the week in business and the outlook for the economy. We'll be talking water conservation after this. The bottom line on KCLR with John Purcell. Brought to you with thanks to O'Neill Foley Accountants. Now offering a complete life and pensions advisory service to business. www.omf.ie you're very welcome back to the programme. You're listening to The Bottom Line, the programme for and about business. John Purcell with you until 10 o'clock. Now, we like to discuss sustainability and uh, protecting the environment on the programme and what business can do to do that. Water is a huge part of our world. Indeed, I'm not quite sure of the percentage, but a large part of each of our bodies is actually comprised of water, so we wouldn't live without water, but it is a precious resource. With me to discuss what business can do to increase water sustainability, save water, reduce uh, waste and so on, is Christine Crawford, who's Business Communication and Marketing Lead with Irish Water. Good morning, Christine. Good morning, John. Yeah, tell us a bit, Christine, about the importance of water and the role it plays in life and in business, I suppose. Back to basics, really. Yes, absolutely, John. Um, Well, to be honest with you, um, water is really a critically important resource. You know, it's fundamental to both homes and businesses, but it's also a limited resource um, with water shortages becoming a global reality. And I think really at the moment, you know, with sustainability raised up really high on our agenda in Ireland and protecting our precious water is becoming just as important as reducing our energy use and that can be seen really when you look at you know the world economic forum and water is now ranked as the third greatest risk to global growth in the next 10 years 
Um, and then when you look at Ireland itself, you know, we've experienced, um, you know, summer droughts and the effects of climate change. And obviously there's been water shortages. So, um, you know, water stewardship is, is such a fantastic um, opportunity for businesses to get involved um, with because, you know, it not only offers a new green credential with our program but you're also going to be businesses will also be protecting the environment and reducing their annual operating costs yeah and cost is because water is a precious resource but it does cost businesses money there are three main elements um i think that you're you're seeking business to be aware of your your water conservation pledge uh becoming a sustainable water partners so you're looking for people to sign up to that and also um water stewardship they're for different types of businesses and different levels of businesses will you just talk us through you know maybe the water conservation pledge yeah absolutely so Irish Water, uh, because water stewardship is really when a business acts as a custodian of our water supply to benefit people in nature. So we've we have set out to work in partnership with business to support them with this water stewardship training to lower water consumption, reduce their operating costs and protect the environment. So I suppose one of the simple steps, there's three steps to sustainable water management within this program. And, you know, simply business, you know, there's a water conservation pledge and businesses are there in, within that they're invited to commit to making changes that will conserve water. And um, it's just a, making a, you know, a simple statement to say that you to stand up to, to say that you're protecting the environment and then you know you can choose there's three different options that you can choose you could you could you know decide that your business wants to be a custodian of the water supply and become water conservation champions you know raising awareness among staff and customers and then and then also we're asking them to businesses to possibly consider you know reducing their water consumption or maybe upgrading um some of their uh, water devices to water efficient devices yeah can you Uh, give us some practical tips i mean people would be aware of you know turn off running taps or eliminate leaks and so on but what other kind of things should people be doing to increase their awareness of their usage of water and, and cut down on waste well, I mean, if, you know, I think all bit businesses would have bathrooms, for example. So, you know, just some examples of what they could do around, you know, become more water efficient would be, um, you know, upgrading to waterless uh, ur- urinals um, because, you know, t- traditionally um, the traditional uh, bathrooms would usually flush every 10 to 15 minutes, 24-7. And um, so this would really... Um, cut back on their water, the amount of water they use um, through that. Um, also, with um, they could replace um, the screw taps if they have those in there with their sinks and taps with mixer taps with sensors that would really cut back. They could consider replacing um, toilets to new, newer dual flush toilets. Um, and, you know, there's examples of uh, just doing that alone, saving businesses, you know, a thousand euros per toilet per annum. Um, and then with showers, um, you could consider using, upgrading to low flow showers. Um, and because these mix, you know, air in with the water to give the impression, uh, the impression of greater volume. So they're just some, um, you know, if the, if the business was willing to put in a little bit of investment, um, 
some simple things they could do around that. I even but saw a heading on, on one of your pieces of information about uh, encouraging people, some businesses could even go waterless in relation to some of their processes. Talk to us about that. Yeah, well, I suppose um, one example would be one of our certified water shirts, um, Intel. They, they've... Um, they're, they're excellent with their water stewardship practices and they've committed to, um, um, you know, uh, sending back 87% of the water they use back to the Liffey, you know. Um, so, I mean, there's some fantastic um, things business are doing around that. Um, that you could also, you know, maybe consider even you know, rainwater harvesting, harvesting um, capturing rainwater for portable uses. Um, so, I mean, there's plenty of uh, stuff out there and there's a lot more information on our observation uh, for business hub at water.ie and we have case studies and we even have um, bespoke tips for various industries on there, John. So um, I would really encourage businesses to check that out. Yeah, now you also have two other programmes, this, this, the Sustainable Water Partner uh, Training and also Water Stewardship. Tell us briefly about those two programmes. Yeah, absolutely. So um, the Sustainable Water Partner Training is uh, is a free online resource within the Water Conservation Hub at water.ie. And this is, um, it's just training on water stewardship and the importance of safeguarding this critical resource of water in business. And, you know, businesses can go on there, they can do the training, they get a new um, green credential to add to their sustainability um, certifications and they can share this with uh, on social media or on any of their marketing materials. Then moving on from that, you could become a certified water steward. Um, and this this program is, you know, it's a world leading program actually. It's um, it's the first of its kind globally. And uh, the Innovative pro- Programme as well was made possible thanks to um, funding from obviously ourselves, Skillnet and the Department of Further and Higher Education, Research, Innovation and Science. And it's really a clear demonstration of Ireland's growing reputation and leadership actions on water stewardship and climate action. Um, so within this training, we would um, cover um, you know, an introduction to water stewardship, setting the business case, then we would go through water mapping of your business and then just water conservation quick wins at your particular site. And then we would um, assist the company to develop a strategy and action plan. And um, and that this is all, um, is actually accredited by European water stewardship standard. Um, so it's a really fantastic um, credential to add to any business. So I suppose in, in finally, uh, just to say that you'd be uh, encouraging business to think about their water use uh, and, you know, encouraging them by the fact that they can save money and the environment by doing so. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it's just it's just fantastic, um, you know, the, to see the, the results of the, of the program to date. Um, you know, 100 percent of the of the, our business customers who've gone through the program so far, um, they would highly recommend it to other businesses. 
The Bottom Line on KCLR with John Purcell. Brought to you with thanks to O'Neill Foley Accountants. Now offering a complete life and pensions advisory service to business. www.omf.ie That was Christine Crawford, who's business communication and marketing lead at Irish Water, pointing out that water is a large cost and there's lots of money to be made, but also the important role in conserving water, ensuring that the world can grow over the coming years and months. Uh, Now, at the start of the programme, I was talking about remote working. Now, little over a year ago, remote working and all that virtual working and all that stuff was, uh, you know, not really familiar. A few people uh, did it, but it wasn't the norm. It is now huge swathes of the economy are working from kitchen tables, spare bedrooms, studies, you name it. And so we thought it'd be a good idea to have a look at uh, all the do's and don'ts and hints and how you can actually work better from home. So we asked Claire McInerney Brown to have a look at literature and tips and so on. And Claire joins me on the phone to talk about how to make your remote working better. Good morning, Claire. Good morning, John. Yeah, so you've been kind of looking around uh, different journals, articles, magazines and so on uh, to come up with tips for people. Tell us, start with mindset. You know, it is a different shift in mindset from leaving home and closing the front door and going off to the office or whatever to actually going upstairs to the spare bedroom. What should people do to get it right? Yes, John, it, it really is. We're in a completely different uh, working environment than we were just a year ago. Um, and so uh, my advice really is to have your mindset correct for working at home. And really that starts in the morning from the minute your feet hit the floor when you're getting up from your bed. Because the interesting thing is um, that if you dress your bed in the morning, your, your mindset is actually tuned for the entire day. So you start from the very moment that you wake up. And there's a very interesting commencement speech that was given by an admiral in the Navy in the United States, Admiral William McRaven. And he gave a commencement speech at the University of Texas. And one of his main points were to dress your bed in the morning. And by dressing your bed, you're actually formatting your brain for what's ahead of you. So you've accomplished your first task no sooner than you've actually gotten out of bed. And what about dressing yourself then for working at home? Is it a tracksuit and kind of slobbing around the place at a Zoom meeting with a shirt and pyjama bottoms and a pair of slippers? Or what's the way to go about it? I know, and we've all seen the we've all seen the little clips that have gone viral with somebody dressed on, uh, you know, on their their top half, but yet on their bottom half they still have their pajamas on. So really, get up, get dressed, get washed. Um, you know, dress yourself in the clothes that you would actually wear uh, to work, because then you're actually also changing your mindset, and you really are thinking about work, and you're thinking, you know, your your entire brain is focused on what you have to do for that day. So organize yourself, organize your day, and if it's a Monday, or better still, the previous Friday, organize your entire next week um, and create a time schedule for your day and actually stick to it. Mm. And what about uh, office equipment and all that kind of stuff? Many people, you know, I've heard of people seeing pictures of people lying on their bed when they're on these famous Zoom calls and so on. Should people have desks? I heard stand-up desks, for example, were proven quite popular because people can walk around on their phone and all that and get exercise while they're at it. I know it's true but you know really people should try not to work at their kitchen table and you know and also let's as you say with everything sprawled out across their bed 
Um, so investing in an office desk and a, a correct office chair is actually it's actually a wise investment. Um, but what has emerged during the pandemic is that a lot of people have back issues, etc. So stand up desks have seen a meteoric rise in popularity. And if you really can't afford a stand up desk, you can improvise by using the ironing board. Um, and so you just ratchet up to the, the top level. And if it's still not high enough for you, just prop up a few books on top and put your laptop on on top of that again. Um, It just gives you that bit of relief from constantly sitting so that you can still continue with your work and uh, you're actually standing up for a while. Yeah, what about the whole thing of actually getting work done, though? Because, like, working from home, there's so many more distractions. Um, There can be interruptions. People, um, you know, homeschooling children and so on. People find it hard to manage their time. Talk to us about the whole thing of effectiveness and, and effectively working properly from home. Yeah, procrastination, really, it's actually a huge issue with people working from home because, you know, they they have all of the time in the world or so it seems, you know, at times, even if they have children at home. So there's no traditional start or finish to their day. So what I would advocate is to do the harder tasks first in the morning. And if you, you know, because they seem more daunting as the day goes on. But even if you have difficulty in getting those harder tasks tasks done. Um, a couple of time management techniques may come in handy. Uh, so one really good one is actually the, the Pomodoro technique. And this comes to us from Italy, um, Pomodoro meaning tomato. And it started with uh, a gentleman called Francesco Cirillo, who had a tomato-shaped timer on his desk. And he set that timer for 25 minutes um, working intervals and, and would work solidly for the 25 minutes and then take a three-minute break. And during that three-minute break, the best thing that you can do is get up and move. Because as humans, we're not designed to sit all of the time. Um, And so get up and move. It's just a three-minute break. It's not really long enough to have have a cup of coffee or anything like that. But set your timer and do three 25-minute sessions and then allow yourself a 15-minute break. So a slightly longer break for you to get that cup of tea, uh, nip to the toilet or, you know, a quick phone call from somebody. But you really need to work at up to four 25-minute intervals before you reward yourself with a much bigger break. So maybe working towards lunchtime um, or something substantially bigger to give your brain a rest. And then in the afternoon, you you start from square one again at, with your Pomodoro technique and you start again with the first 25-minute interval. So it can help people who aren't really used to um, effective time management and they have shorter tasks so that they can efficiently get something done within a 25-minute period. Okay, Claire. Um, stay with us. Speaking of time management, I've got to uh, take a quick commercial break and uh, we'll be back to talk about more tips on how to maximise the effectiveness of your remote working. KCLR. The heart of two counties. John Purcell with you on the bottom line until 10 o'clock. We're talking about how to maximise the effectiveness of your home working. Uh, Claire McInerney-Brown with me on the line. Um, uh, Claire, we were talking about time management, but um, another whole issue is how people's working relationships have changed in terms of, you know, just as much as people used to be able to walk around the office and get a bit of uh, exercise, now they might find themselves stuck in a spare bedroom. They used to be meeting colleagues every day of the week and now they're kind of isolated that that brings up the issue of loneliness um but also the whole relationship issues 
That's true. That's very true, John, you know, because loneliness really affects everybody at the moment. So it affects people who are working from home. It certainly affects people who are cocooned, etc. So, you know, whether it affects people on a daily basis or whether it hits people now and again, it is actually an issue of the pandemic. And it's an issue that we've seen, you know, right, right across, you know, all of society. But what I would advocate uh, for people to do in the working environment um, or the virtual working environment is to take a virtual coffee break and to schedule one perhaps every Friday morning um, where they know that they can jump on a, a Teams call or a Zoom or a Google Meet with their colleagues. And, uh, you know, it's time to de-stress with the people that you would be working with if you had the normal office environment. Uh, some of those people you may not have had the opportunity to converse with during the week, but yet you could catch up with them on, on a coffee break mm. um, on a Friday. So if it's something that's actually in the diary, it's there. Um, you can jump on it if you're, if you're free, if you don't have any scheduling conflicts. Um, but it's consistent and it's there every single Friday and it just gives... Um, I suppose it allows you to see people in a different way, somebody you might have had a run-in with during the week or something like that. And what about the run-in thing there, Claire? How do people deal with that remotely? Because normally you could have a, you know, people can stick their head around the office door and all that. How can you do it remotely? (laughs) true. Yeah, because remote conflict actually is something that um, is probably more apparent now in the pandemic because you don't have the social cues that you normally would have in the office environment. You know, you can swing by somebody's desk and see would they be receptive to you saying something to them or asking for something or, you know, you've got your water cooler moments where you're having a glass of water with um, with a work colleague and you might take your opportunity there to ask for something or even at the coffee dock. But, you know, you don't have those interactions anymore. So you can't judge somebody's facial expressions, their body language, if you're not meeting them as you pass them in the corridor. Yeah. Um, and so, you you know, people are misinterpreting um you know, a lot of things that are happening maybe on email um, and they're, you, you know, they're looking for details of negative intention. OK, you well, know, finally, Claire, we're that? running out of time and sorry to cut mm. across you, but okay. Zoom is ever present. Um, you were telling me you came across some really interesting stuff about Zoom. Tell us quickly about that. Yeah, so uh, Jeremy Balenson, he's a professor of communication and he's a founding director of the Stanford Virtual Human Interaction Lab. So he's been studying Zoom and most in in particular, he's been studying Zoom fatigue. Um, And the reason that he has found through his studies, which are peer reviewed, by the way, um, is that it's the excessive amount of close up eye gaze that we have when we're talking to people on Zoom. So we are now talking to people and far closer up to their faces than we would be if we met them in an office situation or in a boardroom across the table. And this is usually reserved for close relationships with a loved one. And now suddenly this is how we're interacting with casual acquaintances, co-workers and actually even strangers. So, John, there could be a lot of love out there after this pandemic because we could be, um, you know, very much thinking that the person who might have been cantankerous in the office is looking awfully good on Zoom. Well, well, I won't go there and we don't have time because we're out of time, but maybe we'll continue that particular uh, theme again. Uh, Look into my eyes or maybe just reduce the screen and don't look at it at all and just listen to the person's (laughs) voice. We leave it there, Claire. Uh, Thanks very much for that. That's Claire McInerney Brown. Thank you, Claire. Thank Um, you, John. That's all we've got time for this week on The Bottom Line. Remember, if you have any comments or ideas you'd like to get uh, to us, you can email thebottomline at caseylaura96fm.com or if you'd like to subscribe to our 
newsletter, drop us an email. If you'd like to listen back to the show, uh, you can get any of the episodes on the KCLR app or just search for us on Apple Store, Google Play or Spotify. Thanks to all our guests this week, Minister Malcolm Noonan, Dara Doyle, Christine Crawford and Claire McInerney Brown. Thanks to Deirdre Drummy who produces the show and thank you for listening. We'll be back next Saturday just after the nine o'clock news. Do stay tuned to Edward Hayden. He's got lots in store. Until then, we speak again. Have yourself a good weekend and a nice week. Stay safe, hold firm and look after yourselves. The Bottom Line on KCLR with John Purcell. Brought to you with thanks to O'Neill Foley Accountants. Now offering a complete life and pensions advisory service to business. www.omf.ie